0: Recent history provides us with evidence, ample evidence I might add, of people who have received warnings of impending doom, disaster, destruction, but have ignored such warnings. In 1989, a 7.1 on the Richter scale earthquake rocked Northern California. It was felt especially in the Bay Area, heavily populated, and 65 people died. If you're a sports fan, a baseball fan in particular, remember that this earthquake occurred just as the announcers were coming on the air to announce the ball game between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland Athletics. And word had reached that part of the freeway had collapsed. It was a double-decker section, and the top had collapsed because it was not really ready for that level of an earthquake. Many people had sounded warning about that, that particular piece of highway, and suggested at least it should be reinforced, and really even better, it should be removed and be one lane. But those who sounded the warning were not heeded, and the result was the death of many people. In the year 2005, Hurricane Katrina devastated the New Orleans area and surrounding areas. In 2002, the New Orleans Times-Picayune, the leading newspaper in the area, had run a series of editorials, research which had shown that there was bound to be soon some sort of hurricane that would hit that area with such force That it would level the levees and there would be no barrier between the surge of the Gulf of Mexico and the city of New Orleans. Three years before the event actually happened, there was some token gesture on the part of the Corps of Engineers to do something to keep that from happening, but they were really simply band aids which were placed. And the result, you remember it perhaps, was devastating because people really didn't heed the warning which was given. In 2008, I'm embarrassed to let you know, somehow or another, this event escaped my notice. I think I know what the somehow and the other was. It was in Asia, in what was once Burma, now known as Myanmar. Cyclone Nargis hit with a vengeance in that area. And listen carefully. 138,000 people were killed. One is too many, of course. 65 is a lot. But when you think about the magnitude of the devastation, and there would have been people who had died had there not been warning given. This globe is orbited by satellites, which are weather satellites. And there are regional meteorological stations all over the world. There is one in this area in the region of Myanmar. And those meteorologists could see this storm from space and how large it was. And there was virtually no preliminary warning given. Last fall, late fall, in Northern California. You remember the campfire, as it was called? Do you remember Paradise, California? And how this fire raged and swept across that area. Over 80 people died in that fire. Many were burned up in their cars as they sought a way of escape. A lot of blame was passed along. The authorities in that area, Butte County, the sheriff there was blamed and his assistants for not getting the word out. Actually, they did get a lot of word out by phone and by text and by other ways, even calls. In his defense of his department and of himself, quite frankly, he said that an effort, a campaign, had been in place for months trying to get people to sign up for what would be described as reverse 911 calls so that when such a disaster was in the offing, that people could get news of it and could get out of there rather than have such a disaster as existed in that particular situation. Jesus Christ is neither reluctant nor negligent to issue warnings regarding His second coming. In the first coming of Christ, it was heralded by the Old Testament prophets. The people of Israel knew full well what this man, Messiah, would be. They knew that He would be born of a virgin. They knew where He would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. They knew that He would minister in Galilee of the Gentiles. And He would also be one who performed incredible miracles. They knew this, but they really weren't ready for His coming. He came and He was right under their noses. He came with the the promised forerunner, John the Baptist, paving the way as He cried out, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And when asked, Are you the Messiah? He said, No, I am simply a voice crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. But especially the scholars, the scribes, the people who were most conversant with the Old Testament law and the prophecies missed the coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes again, it will be a sudden, unannounced He's announced it, but it's going to come and catch many people off guard despite the fact that they have received repeated warnings and no one will be without excuse. In the Bible, in the Old Testament book of Amos, chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, prepare to meet your God. The word prepare is used in various settings in the Old Testament, I'm going to mention two that will help us understand that this word prepare, wherever it's used, is designed to challenge those who hear it or read it to understand that they need to get their houses in order. And there are certain steps which are necessary to do that. And various scenarios, as i mentioned, were described as scenarios which was in big need of preparation for instance two in the book of Joshua Joshua 111 is Joshua is preparing the people of God to cross the Jordan into the promised land he gives them warning to prepare provisions because in 3 days they're crossing the Jordan river they would not find people there who were friendly to them. In fact, they would find people who were hostile to them. And there would not be a lot of festivity on the parts of those people and no hospitality. So they needed to prepare for food. If you're going to go into a land that you know very little about, you want to take some food with you. We take, do that when we take journeys here in our own country sometimes. Joshua uses it later in the 8th chapter of Joshua, the 4th verse, where he talks about his army being ready to line up in ranks as they're going to attack an enemy. And some of you are military people presently, or you have been, and you know the importance of being prepared, having the right gear, having the right weaponry, being prepared before going into battle because they're is no time to prepare once you are in the fight. So when God says prepare to meet your God through the prophet Amos, He's giving us a warning. It's a volley across the bow of our humanity and our resistance to God. And it's a warning for us to get ready, to get right, and to be prepared when the Lord Jesus comes. In the book of Psalms 89, verse 48, the Scripture says, How can a man live and not see death? The writer of Hebrews says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. To face a holy God, we need to get ready. When I was a young man, it was during the Jesus movement, there was a song which grew out among other songs, and it was a warning It says, People get ready. Jesus is coming. He's coming. It's been a while since the Jesus movement, about 50 years. Jesus is coming. He's nearer coming now than He was then. We need to be ready. The Boy Scouts motto is be prepared. Be prepared in all situations. Be prepared to do your duty to God and to your country to other people, and to yourself in each and every situation. That's the Boy Scouts. The Scripture is very clear. Be prepared. Today what we're going to do is look at one of the parables of Jesus, which says, be ready. Jesus is coming. So let's turn our attention now to the first verse of Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now this obviously is referring to a wedding. We have no clue how significant a social event a wedding was in an Israeli village or in a city, in a part of a, a city. It was incredibly festive. Every person in the village would be invited to a seven-day-long wedding feast. That's something to get excited about, isn't it? And that's the way it worked. The whole idea of marriage was much more seriously taken by the descendants of Abraham than it is by us today who follow Christ, and especially in our culture. It was comprised of three phases. The father of the bride the father of the groom, would come together and they would arrange a marriage. This would be equivalent to an engagement ceremony. In a few days after this arrangement was reached, there would be a betrothal. And the would-be bride, the would-be groom, the families and friends would come and they would exchange vows. They did not consummate the marriage at that time. But the betrothal was extremely important. Remember what Joseph did when he learned that Mary, to whom he was betrothed, was with child. And he knew he had not had intercourse with her. So the conclusion you and I would probably reach was the initial conclusion he reached. She's been with another man. But to show us what kind of man Joseph was, what did he do? He decided to put her away Privately. And the word put away means divorce her. When you're betrothed, you could be divorced. It was legally a marriage, even though you had not consummated the marriage. If a young betrothed virgin, maiden, lost her legal husband during the betrothal period, the result was that she would be known as a widow even though she had never known a man. So that was the second part, betrothal. A little different from our way of doing things, isn't it? An arranged marriage, a betrothal, and during that betrothal period, the would-be groom would go out on his own. He would have saved some money perhaps leading up to that point, but he worked on his own, and all the money which came in as a result of his labor would go toward finishing the house in which he and his soon-to-be full-fledged bride would start a life together. There they would express their love in a full way through the physical relationship. And in addition to that, they would anticipate the voices of children in that home and look forward to becoming their parents. Then, as we look at this parable before us, What we discover is that there comes a time when the bridegroom and his friends, a day has been set, it's been announced, and people are aware of it. Not the exact time that this event I'm about to declare to you took place. That was part of the fun of the day. But when that word was let out that this particular day, that the bridegroom and his friends were going to make their way from the soon-to-be home of this newlywed couple, there would be wedding attendants. We would call them bridesmaids today. And they would be enlisted by the would-be bride made up of close friends and family members, all of whom would have been virgins themselves. Actually, the word is virgin in the Scripture. And those virgins would wait on the coming of the bridegroom, it was their responsibility to look for the coming. And the coming would almost always happen at night. It would heighten the excitement about it and the pageantry of it because when the bridegroom arrived with his entourage, then these ten or whatever number maidens who were there would take up their lamps. And actually the word is not lamp in the original language. It's actually the word Torch. It would be a pole on the top. There would be tightly wound cloth around the top, and that would be dipped in oil. And when the time came, those torches would be lit. And the result of that would be that these ten virgins would go with the bridegroom and his entourage with their dear friend, the bride-to-be, to the place of festivities for seven days. Well, when they would get to that place, after the seven days or so of feasting, then what the friend of the bridegroom... Remember John the Baptist described himself as the friend of the bridegroom? He was, wasn't he? He was the herald, wasn't he? Certainly he was. And so he, that is the friend of the bridegroom, at the appointed time would take the hand of his best friend, as the best man we would call, and he would put his hand in the hand of his bride. And then that was a signal for all the guests, all those in the village, to end the festivity, go home, and let this couple get on with their marriage. Okay, back to Matthew 25. I know you wanted to hear all of that this morning. (laughs) I kind of get exciting thinking about it. That's awesome. <laughs> Verse 2 of chapter 25. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. When the Bible uses the term fool or foolish or foolishness, it's not talking about lack of intellectual ability. It's always used to speak of being a dullard morally or spiritually. Someone who is just clueless when it comes to understanding the ways of God. So there are five of these maidens who are in the camp of the foolish and five who were prudent. Verse 3 says, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent, that would be wise, took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Two approaches to this festive occasion. One with no preparation, really. We're going to see that as we work our way forward in this passage of Scripture. The other with a contingency plan. Having some extra oil in the event that they run out with oil because they don't want to miss the party. They want to be in the wedding party. It's such a, an honor to be in that party. Verse 5 says, Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. There's a lot of imagery here, isn't there? There's a lot of application here for us. Notice that Jesus does not, in the parable, condemn sleep. Five were wise. What did they do? They got drowsy and they fell asleep. Five were foolish. What did they do? They got drowsy and they fell asleep. Nothing wrong, Jesus says, for getting rest. In fact, he calls... His apostles to be men who mix rest in with their vibrant activity in spreading the gospel. The problem was that these two groups of people possibly, there's no actuality of this in written form, but possibly would be connected to the fact that one group had a false sense of security, that would be the foolish virgins, and another group, had a rest that passes all understanding because they had put their trust in the Lord. That's the idea. Okay, verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Rabbinical teaching of the day believed that when the Messiah would come, Messiah would come at midnight. Now, that's not in the Scripture, but probably lay behind some of the thinking of Jesus with this particular parable. At midnight, there was a shout. These young ladies were sound asleep. They were awakened by the shout. They knew what it was about. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Perhaps this was the friend of the bridegroom announcing the arrival, which had been long anticipated. But all were asleep. Verse 7 says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now that seems a little snotty, really, doesn't it? Don't you think they could share a little bit of what they had? But that we're going to see in a little while misses the whole idea that is conveyed in this about the nature of oil and the way in which a person acquires that oil. That's all important as far as our relationship to God through Christ is concerned and certainly as it relates to the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 10. And while they were going away, these would be the five unwise, foolish virgins. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. They missed it, didn't they? Why? They weren't prepared. They weren't ready. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But He answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. How insensitive of Jesus. How rude of Jesus. That these people who were just a little late were not welcome in. Do you know why they weren't welcome in? Because they didn't belong in the family to begin with. Remember, this festivity is for... Family and friends. And these people did not qualify as friends. We're going to see why in just a little bit. Verse 13 says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is the fifth in a series of warnings which Jesus gives, beginning in the 24th chapter of Matthew with verse 36, then 42, then 44, and then verse 50. This is the fifth and final warning that Jesus gives. Do you think Jesus wanted us to be ready? Are we ignorant? If we are, it's because we haven't heard it. We haven't put ourselves in a position to hear it. We haven't read the Word of God as we might read it and should read it. But there's no lack of effort on Jesus' part. To let us know we need to be prepared because he is coming. Let's now zero in on this parable a little more closely. There are two kinds of professing Christians, I use the word lightly or advisedly, two kinds of Christians which are represented in this group of ten virgins wedding attendance of the bride. The first is what I would describe as Lord Lord Christians. We read from Matthew chapter 7 where the word of God says Jesus speaks and he says there's coming a day when I'm coming back and when I get back a lot of people are going to say Lord Lord and I'm going to say I never knew you And they're going to be astonished. And they're going to say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do works of power is actually the wording in that passage in the 7th chapter of Matthew. Works of power in your name. It's interesting. Jesus does not take exception to anything they said. They did these things in his name. That's another sermon in itself. But they were depending on something, a ministry of miracles, in order to ensure they're going into heaven. If I read this correctly, there are people who do miracles in the name of Christ who are not going to be in heaven because the Lord does not know them. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. We're going to get to that, too, hopefully, before the morning is over. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And by the way, there were two churches in Wittenberg, Germany. Did you know that? It wasn't just one. And the door upon which he nailed these 95 theses was the door for... Royalty and aristocrats. It was not for the common folk. Luther preached to the common people. He goes and he nails this document to the door. Do you know what the first one said? It was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He intended that the whole life of believers be a life of repentance. And that does not mean that our lives are lives where we get saved and we lose our salvation. We get saved, we lose our salvation. That's not what it means. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel message. We don't really read the Bible in its entirety. But what it does say is, Luther would say, when we come to know Christ, it's by faith alone and grace alone. Faith alone in the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's altogether a gift to us. However, this is what he would say about such faith. It is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith, he wrote. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. Whoever doesn't do such good works is an unbeliever. Whoa, Martin Luther. That's tough. I thought... The book of Ephesians says, It's by grace through faith that we have been saved, and that not of ourselves. The gift of God, lest any man should boast. Yes, Luther would say, with a resounding yes, he would say it. But verse 10 of Ephesians 2 has to be read. It's part of the discourse, of course. And it says this, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This squares with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Plain when He says, Why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's Notice what Luther said. He says that it's an inevitable event that we will do good works once we come to Christ. Why? Because when we receive Christ... How do we receive Christ? By faith, of course, as a result of God's grace. But in what form do we receive Christ? He comes in and lives in us. And He does not put His body down inside of us. Otherwise, He would be restricted to one body like He was when He walked on the earth. But He comes by His Spirit. In Romans 8 9, the Scripture says, "...whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ." Jesus comes to live in us. And when Jesus walked on this earth, the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 20, it says, He was a man who went about doing good. When Jesus comes to live in you or in me, if He really is there, if we are more than Lord, Lord Christians, we're going to see what kind of Christian we have to be, but we're more than a Lord, Lord Christian. We really give Him control of our lives. We surrender to Him. Earlier in the book of Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus tells several parables about the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. The treasure in question is undoubtedly Jesus Christ. The pearl of great price is Jesus Christ. Don't make a mistake and conclude from these parables that God would say, you got to go and sell everything and get a bunch of money and pay your way into heaven. Absolutely not. What he's saying is there's only one foundation upon which any individual's life is to be built if that life is to fulfill its intended purpose and it's to last forever and have an impact that is eternal. And that's the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's also true of the church. There's the foundation of Jesus Christ delivered to us by the Spirit of God in the writings of the apostles and the prophets. It's the idea of surrender that leads to the other kind of a professing Christian, those who are simply Lord, Lord, professors of Christ are not real people of God. They don't know the Lord. And you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord, we will be saved? It says that, but that's not all it says. It says, If we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, then we will be saved. We have to believe that Jesus died for us. And we have to trust Christ to come and forgive us of our sin. And He's the one who's been raised from the dead. And that's how He's capable of coming to live with us. I'm in conversation with a woman who's a professional here in our city. She and I have had four conversations, the most recent of which was on Wednesday. I couldn't believe when I looked at my watch when we finished our conversation, a two-hour conversation. It seemed like 20 minutes because the Spirit of the Lord was involved, obviously, in the conversation. And she had told me the week before, she said, do I have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ be saved, she didn't use the word saved, but in her terminology, I said, yes, you do. We serve a living Savior. He's alive and he has to come and live in our lives in order for us to have this kind of life, this kind of faith that fits us for heaven, gets us ready for heaven. And then on Wednesday of last week, she kind of leaned forward. She's very sincere. She's very sincere. She grew up in the church, by the way. Not a Baptist church, but a church. You can grow up in a Baptist church and not know the Lord, believe me. And so she leaned forward and she said, now look, I want to cut to the chase. What is the non-negotiable? That's the term she used. What is the non-negotiable? And I said, the non-negotiable is complete surrender to Jesus Christ. Total dependence. That's what faith is. Total dependence. Not a halfway, three quarter way, ninety eight percent way, but to the degree that you understand it and I understand it, a total dependence on the Lord. We talked after that. God's working in her life is just unbelievable to watch God work. She's going to come to the Lord. I have, I tell her that. I say, when you come to Christ, when you come to Christ. I'm not trying to brainwash her. I'm just getting her prepared to receive the Lord, you know. She's going to come to the Lord. But she is going to have to, just like everyone else, give Christ control. That's what it means to know the Lord. To give Him control of our lives. So, don't be just a vocal You've got to vocalize it. You've got to say Jesus Christ is Lord and mean it. And the word Lord in itself dictates the terms of that kind of relationship. It means undisputed, heavyweight Lord of the world is what it means. Jesus is the only one that you bow the knee to. He is the one that you recognize as God become man. He's the one who tells you how to follow Him. And He doesn't simply tell you. He's not a pastor-teller. He's the good pastor-doer. He lives it. And He wants to live it in and through our lives. Here's what kind of believer you must be. Have mercy on me, Lord. I am a sinner. That's the kind of person who is prepared for heaven we read this wonderful parable. It's introduced by Jesus with these words. He's speaking to a bunch of people, and these people trust in themselves for righteousness. There's a key idea trust in themselves for righteousness. And they look at contempt upon others. And the image that Jesus draws is the image of this self righteous Pharisee in the temple filled maybe with a crowd this large, maybe much larger, I don't know. But he's there and he's just sort of preening like a peacock there in front of all these people. And what does he say? I thank you, God, that I'm not like the adulterers and the swindlers and the unrighteous and I'm sure not like that gal in the corner, that tax collector. And all eyes probably went to that man and when they locked their eyes on Him, they see a man who is beating his chest. That's a sign of deep grief over sin. And then his head is bowed. He can't even look up. He's in the presence of a holy God. And we hear Him say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the way the ESV, the NIV, and when Jesus read from the New American Standard, it says, the sinner what does that tell us about his viewpoint of himself? Here's this other guy. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these other vermin here. I'm a cut above. What, what is he saying? The sinner. In his own heart, he saw himself as the only sinner in that setting and probably the only sin, sinner in the world because he'd seen the goodness of God and contrasted to his own sinfulness. And what did Jesus say about that man? He said, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified. What does that mean? He was right with God. Because he was not a Lord, Lord Christian only. He was a have mercy on me, Lord Christian. If you had that kind of commitment to Jesus? Do you have that kind of commitment to Jesus? Two types of people will meet Christ at His return and they will both types profess faith in Him. Properly address Him. There will be two fates. The fate of the Lord. Lord will be, I never knew you. Cast Him into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's what the Bible calls hell. Hell estrangement forever from God. And let me make this plain. Our God is a holy God. And in order to maintain His own integrity, He has to punish sin. And He did exactly that when Jesus Christ went to the cross. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin, On our behalf. Notice the language. Made Jesus to become. Jesus volunteered and God the Father imputed sin. All the sin of your life and my life and the lives of no telling how many other people He imputed it. He made it part of who Jesus was. And Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Unbelievable this Gospel. Book of Ezekiel 18, God says this I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. D.L. Moody, George Whitfield, great evangelist in the history of the church. Men from totally different backgrounds. Whitfield, an intellectual, Anglican. Moody, I don't even know if he had a denomination. He just loved the Lord and preached the word. He couldn't even say a sentence without getting his. Verbs and nouns mixed up. Had no eloquence, but when these men would preach on hell, the Bible would say they would, uh, the historians tell us, they would weep. The very thought of someone going to hell touched them so deeply. So don't think that the Lord is sitting high on his throne, just sort of licking his chops, waiting for the day when he returns and he can cast all these people into an everlasting hell. That's not our Lord. Our Lord wants you and me to know the Lord. He wants us to have a heart that has been changed by Him. So that's one group. Depart from me. That's one fate. The other fate is welcome to the party. The joy of the Lord is your strength, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us when we go out to our final resting place in heaven. And it's not going to be a resting place. That's a poor choice of words on my part. Because the Bible says we will serve the Lord day and night. We'll never get tired physically. That's awesome to think about. If you like to work, you're going to enjoy heaven a lot. <laughs> because there's plenty to be done. But meanwhile, we need to get about doing the work of the Lord here. Jesus says, let us work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Prior to that, He was approached by a group of people who said, Sir, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus responded by saying this, This is the work of God, that you believe in the One who sent me. It's faith works. That's what it is. Faith works And it's based and predicated upon a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy. Heaven's joyful. But we get a head start on it, by the way, here. Jesus says in John 15, when he's talking about the imperative nature of our being in a dependent relationship with him as the vine, and we are so many branches in that vine, he's the true vine. We are in Him. He says this, "...these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full." Do you know anything about that joy? Independent of any circumstance? Some of you are going through a hell on earth right now. I don't know what form it takes, but it's awful for you. But if you know Christ, somehow or another... His presence in you as you understand and you yield to Him and you do what the Scripture says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be of to all. And you look to the Lord and you're just elevated above the fray of all that battle that's going on. It's not like you stick your head in the sand. It's not that. We're not like that as believers. We have real pain. And we suffer in this life. The Bible talks about that's going to be part of our walk with the Lord. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But what happens is we're in the presence of the Lord. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, the fiery furnace in the story of Daniel. What did Nebuchadnezzar see to his amazement? He saw a fourth person in the furnace walking around with them who was like a man. And He said, like a, the Son of God, is what He said. Jesus was with them. And He is with us in whatever fire we're in. And the Bible says, in your presence, this is Psalm 16 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. So we can get the joy now. But it's going to be an upgrade, heaven is, in every way. And the joy will be beyond what we ever could dream it to be. Then there are two lessons. first lesson is, two types of people who profess Christ when He comes. What are they? Lord, Lord, believers only. And then, have mercy on me, Lord, believers. And then there are two fates: Depart from me, I never knew you. Or welcome, precious in my sight, are you because you are a saint of God. You are one whom I set apart in your mother's womb for my use, and you fulfilled your purpose on earth. Two lessons, you can't borrow oil. That's the first lesson. (laughs) Oil is a symbol in the Old Testament for the Holy Spirit. And remember, this life, the Christian life, cannot be lived apart from the Holy Spirit of God. In Ezekiel 36, 27, predicting the new covenant, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will put My Spirit in you and I will move you to keep My commandments and observe all of My statutes. This comes back to what I mentioned earlier. How this Christian life has a certain inevitability about it of overcoming If you're not overcoming, you need to wake up and really understand the Scripture and believe what the Bible says, not what your feelings or the culture says. And be sure you are a have mercy on me Christian and not just somebody who plays the game and says, Lord, this and Lord, that or Lord, the other. Don't depend upon yourself. Don't trust in yourself. You will not have a good ending. You can't borrow oil. Every man, woman in this room who wants to be in that group that is welcome into heaven when Jesus comes back, look, you have to trust the Holy Spirit to give you the power to live the Christian life. And when that happens, you're going to... You're going to overcome whatever's bothering you. I'm not trying to minimize the level of your enslavement to sin. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. But we serve a God who conquered death. And the Bible says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. You know what Jesus did when He was on the cross? He took the stinger out of death. Sin. He became sin. He took it all out. And when I was a boy, we used to catch honeybees. And if we got the stinger out of them, they tried to sting it, but they had no power. Greater is He who is in you, if you know Christ, than He who is in the world. You can't borrow oil. It will be too late when Jesus comes back. There are no second chances. There's no purgatory. It's now. You only have now. Now is the day of salvation. is what God says. So, as I finish this morning, the words of Jesus, enter through the narrow gate. He's talking about Himself. The word is actually door. We know He describes Himself as a door in John's Gospel. For the door is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. But the door is small and the way... Does that ring a bell? Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Please bow your head. If you... Are aware of the fact that you're just a Lord, Lord Christian? And you sense God's calling you to plead for His mercy? Why don't you take a moment just to ask the Lord, Lord, please have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't deserve Your mercy, Lord. I don't deserve Your love, Your grace but I'm standing in need of all of those things. I'm standing in need of You today, Lord. Please forgive me of my sin. Thank You for dying in my place on the cross and coming back alive. Thank You for speaking to me today through this part of the Bible. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.